Hi, I'm Scott Watson. Welcome to 10 Ways to Develop Emotional Intelligence in Your Classroom. By the end of this audio program, you will understand how to develop greater levels of emotional intelligence and awareness in yourself. You will also learn how to develop an emotionally intelligent classroom. You will also learn how to develop a healthy emotional climate in your classroom with students and how to deal with it effectively and proactively when the emotional climate and behaviour isn't as it needs to be or perhaps as good as it could be. So, let's get straight on. Tip one is for you to be more aware of how you manage yourself, how you manage your mental focus, how you manage your time, how you manage your priorities. Now, as a teacher, as an educator... I do realise and absolutely understand that you have planning time, but sometimes, some days, there just never seems to be enough planning time. There's so much doing, so many things to do, so many conflicting priorities, so many different expectations from your line manager or the principal of your school. So that aside... I would like you to think about how you can use these tools, tips and techniques to make some positive changes. Remember, what I'm sharing with you today is to complement and work alongside your technical competence and the things that you do really well anyway. The purpose of this audio program is to help you explore new avenues to develop new, improved, better ways of working, thinking and educating the children in your care. Let me ask you this question. Do you ever arrive at school stressed? A little bit out of sorts. A little bit thinking, oh my goodness, I've got so much to do. I've got so little time to do it and school starts in 15 minutes. I don't know how I'm going to get it done. Most of the teachers I've ever worked with say that that happens occasionally. It's not the norm, it is the exception. And that's a fantastic thing. But have a think about it this way. If you have 30 children in your class... If you invite them into the classroom and you're in a stressed state or not a calm, relaxed and focused state, which could be called normal in most cases, if you're stressed, if you're thinking about too many things all at once or you're not focused on engaging with them right from the outset, you're going to transmit emotions to them. You're going to transmit invisibly through thin air your emotions to them at that point. Now, This is why self-awareness is such a fantastic foundation on which to build emotionally intelligent teaching. Because if we're not aware of something about ourselves, we can't then manage it and we can't then decide how we want to change it, improve it, or do more of something or do less of something. And because we spend all day behind our face as educators, we don't get to see what the students get to see. And if you have 30 children or students in your class, they may see you 30 different ways. But think of it this way, if you have a remote control at home for the TV and there's no wires connecting the remote control to the television, it's invisible, it's an invisible signal that sends the transmission from the remote control through to the television. That is exactly the same principle that applies to emotions in the classroom. So first of all, please arrive at school in a calm, focused and relaxed state. That sets the scene for how your morning is going to go. And if you start your lessons in um, an emotionally turbulent or stressed state, your students will catch that. And all you will do, you will become more frustrated, a little less patient with students when they behave or communicate in a manner that you don't wish them to or expect them to. 
that's not acceptable by your organisation. And all that will do is add another brick to that wall where relationships start to break down and the emotions get a little bit out of hand. And when that happens, your students will not feel as engaged or as enabled in their learning because they are following your lead. You, as the teacher, set the emotional climate of the classroom. What do I mean by emotional climate? Well, think of it this way. Don't you enjoy being around students who are happy, content, excited, love a sense of adventure, behave well, communicate with you positively when you ask them a question or invite them to get involved. What does that do for you? Doesn't it make your life easier? Doesn't it make it more enjoyable? Doesn't it help you get through the day when the climate in the, in the classroom is rather warm and sunny? That's the most simple way to explain the emotional temperature in a classroom. Now, think of it this way. You as the teacher set the emotional climate in the classroom and this is why it's so important to arrive at school or to your workplace in a relaxed, calm and focused manner. Because the way you start the day, those first five minutes will set the tone for the morning and could set the tone for the rest of the day. So it's important that you get off to a really good start. But rather than hoping it happens or letting it happen by accident, it's about planning it so it's designed to start that way. So, a question for you to think about now are, and this is really straightforward, but please think about it. I want you to come up with your answers rather than just accept mine as recommendations. What are three things you are prepared to do from tomorrow to ensure that you arrive at school relaxed, calm and focused? Please have a think about that now. I trust that you have your three answers and that they're worthwhile and meaningful for you, easy to apply and practical to use. Now on to tip two. Again, this relates to you. We're starting with you because you're the most influential person in that classroom and by default and for all the right reasons, you are the appointed and authorised leader. So it's important that you're as well equipped and enabled as you can possibly be to develop an emotionally intelligent classroom. So tip two is this. Ask yourself better questions at the beginning, throughout and at the end of each school day. What do I mean by this? Well, you may have a default setting which gets you through the day, hopefully you enjoy it and ideally the students learn what they need to learn as per the curriculum and per the timescales for that learning. But here's the thing, if we ask ourselves better questions, it directs our brain and our emotions in the way that is going to support us productively and effectively. And this isn't done by asking why questions, such as, why is this such a bad day? Why have I not got time to do all the things I need to do? Why is that student or that group kicking off again? Why aren't they listening? It's not about why questions. It's about how questions, but very productive how questions, such as, how can I enjoy today and ensure that students learn what is needed? How can I enable students to be more excited about learning about this subject? What are two things I could do to ensure that the emotional climate in the classroom this morning is set really warm and enables, encourages and allows effective learning and enjoyment of it? By taking time to ask ourselves these questions first thing in the morning, throughout lunch 
and also at the end of the day for the next day's planning, can we then enable ourselves to perform optimally or as effectively as possible at or near our best as educators on a daily and consistent basis? And just wonder, how can you use this principle, this tip, with your students? Isn't it easy to say, uh, boys, girls, ladies, gentlemen... I'd like you to think of two things that you would really like to learn about this subject today. Write them down and I'm going to be with you in a few minutes to get some of your answers. What does that do? It gets the student's brain thinking in the direction that you want it to go and also gets them thinking about enjoying learning, having an adventure rather than thinking I've got to do this activity or I've got to read that chapter of that book. So how questions and matched with what questions, if the what questions are what are two things I could do or for the students what are two things you could do to improve your reading when presenting, what are two things you think you can do to improve how you communicate with fellow students on your table. Think about how questions and what questions. Now, one teacher actually told me that uh, to remind himself to have these questions in his brain, in his mind throughout the day, he put an elastic band around his uh, left wrist. And when he just thought he was going into an element of frustration or going off track in his own brain, with his own emotional focus, even if the students hadn't noticed yet, he would just ping this elastic band a couple of times and that would snap him out of that emotional state and help him go into and enter a more positive, more productive and more collaborative emotional state that would then support the students in their learning. So I expect whilst budgets are tight these days in schools, you can find an elastic band somewhere and hopefully your school policy won't put it down as an item of jewellery that's banned. So please think about how questions, how can I enjoy today? How can I enable learning from my students? How can I encourage them to have an adventure when learning about Egypt? How can I manage myself when things are getting a little bit on top of me? How can I get some support to get this presentation completed or this display board completed how questions how questions how questions with what questions not why questions if you do continue having great days you can ask yourself why do i keep having great days and it's possibly to do with you being more aware of how you choose to think how you choose to communicate how you choose to operate on a moment by moment and daily basis in your classroom so before we move on to tip three, please consider what are three proactive, positive how and what questions you can ask yourself first thing in the morning, during lunch hour, to set you up for the afternoon and at the end of the day to set you ready for the next day. Because at the end of the day, you can ask yourself a what question. What three things have gone really well today and why is that? There has to be a reason for something going well. And the clearer you become on that, it creates more purpose. It gives a reason, uh, a validation of what you've done differently, what you've done more effectively, and what little habits that you may be aware of now that you've started to change for the good of the students and for yourself. So three questions you can ask yourself throughout the day. What questions, how questions that will help you perform even more effectively, communicate even more effectively, support and enable education even more effectively. What could those questions be? Please pause this program now, answer that question 
come up with your answers, and then we'll move on to tip three. Tip three is this. Mind your language. What do I mean by that? Well, we all do it sometimes. Some teachers do it more than others, unwittingly, of course. But sometimes we're not aware of the impact our language, the words we use and how we use them have on students and their ability and willingness to continue learning. Let me give you an example. If I say to you, uh, don't think of a pink elephant. Whatever you do, do not think of a pink elephant. Stop thinking of a pink elephant. I've asked you not to. What have you just done? Well, whether you're going to admit it privately or not, you've thought of a pink elephant, even though I asked you not to. Now, this is a challenge with communicating with any human being, and especially with students. Because our brain doesn't process negative commands effectively, we get to start thinking about what we're not supposed to be doing. So, for example, if um, a student is misbehaving and you say, don't do that, quite assertively, you've also got to tell them what you want them to do instead. So as well as being aware of what they need to stop doing, they need to be made aware of what to start doing. So if they're throwing pencils around the classroom, for example, it's stop throwing pencils around the classroom, sit down, Put your hands on the desk and pay attention. Now, if they're 17, 18-year-old, you'll need to think of another example, of course, that's befitting their age and maturity. But that is the principle. So if you're going to tell a student what to stop doing, you need to also tell them what to start doing instead. Otherwise, their brain will drift. Their brain is not being directed anywhere. And you may not have realised this, as well as being a professional educator and teacher and enabler of learning, part of your role you may not have known about is to guide your student's brain in the direction that's going to support and enable learning. And while negative commands don't do that, they just go in the opposite direction until they choose to stop and do something else, positive language, transformational language, delivered in the right manner at the right time to the right person can really reinforce their learning and embed new standards of behaviour, new expectations on how to behave and communicate in the classroom. So I invite you to be more aware of the language you use. If you're asking a student to stop doing something, stop that, don't do that. Catch yourself doing that and then just add another sentence onto the end of that stating what you want them to do and what you expect them to do and when you expect them to do it by. So please stop doing that now and start doing this other thing now. So they don't just think, well, there's no time scale on me stopping doing this and doing that, so I'll just carry on. Uh, <laughs> that's a little bit extreme, but it does happen. So catch yourself using don't, stop, and these kinds of things, but also replace it with something transformational that guides the, the student's brain in the direction you want it to be and where it deserves to be to enable and support effective learning. So please write down in a moment, pause this program, and then write down four habits you may have in terms of how you use dialogue and communication and words to address behaviour or stop something but then start thinking about what you're going to replace it with. This is a fundamental building block to effective emotional intelligence in the classroom, which is getting 
your students to engage and listen to and understand the implications and consequences of their behaviour, both positive and negative. So please think about four things that you say now that you could improve, add to or change completely. And also, if you have a classroom teaching assistant, ask them to support you by giving you little nudges or a little bit of a nod when they catch you doing it because if it's a blind spot we're not aware of again it's about self-awareness if we're not aware of it that we're doing it we can't change it and if you do want to change it and it's just a little thing with such a big impact maybe it's worth asking for that support please take a moment to do this quick activity now and then we'll move on to tip four tip four is Provide specific, meaningful feedback. Provide specific, meaningful feedback. What do I mean by that? Well, from my days at school, a school report used to say very good, satisfactory and little else. But my parents didn't have any understanding of really what constituted satisfactory and what constituted very good. It was just a few words on a report. These days things are different, of course. But However much we believe we communicate in a way that students really understand, as some of my secondary school report cards said, there is always room for improvement. Now, what do I mean by specific? If you write in uh, a workbook, a school book, good piece of work, well done. This is really good, accompanied by a smiley face or a little star stamp that is often used in junior schools. That is a good start, but it doesn't really help the student, the learner, the recipient of your feedback, understand exactly what made it a good piece of work, why it was so fantastic. Now, comments like, fantastic piece of work, or great piece of work, well done, this is a great effort, it's really good that you want to share that information, but if you want to really connect the emotional side of the student's uh, brain into engaging in the learning and engaging with the feedback it's, it needs to be more specific so their brain doesn't have to guess why it was good, why it was fantastic and this is simply by adding a few more words that create meaning for the reader for the student. For example fantastic piece of work well done what made this fantastic was point A, point B point C and just bullet points so they can internalise and appreciate that the feedback you've given, as well as being complimentary and supportive and encouraging, is specific. Now, if you add point A, point B, point C, for example, they now have in their head, in their brain, an understanding of what constitutes fantastic, what constitutes very good, what constitutes first class. You see, as well as being an educator and a teacher... One of your roles, in and amongst everything else, is to create personal meaning for your students. So the information you impart isn't just to impart information, it's not just to help, it's to help them create personal meaning and a connection with it so they're better able and possibly better equipped and more willing to act upon it. So the skill here is to put yourself in the student's shoes and think, if I had this feedback... What would it mean? What would I want to know? What would I want to understand so I know what to do next time? Because, again, our brains keep score. Students' brains keep score. And lots of well-dones and lots of smiley faces at a good start. But it's the 
very bad ending if you don't help them really appreciate and understand how they can replicate that and model that fantastic piece of work, that outstanding piece of work, that first-class effort the next time they do a similar project, whether it's in the same subject or another subject totally unrelated to the one you're feeding back on. So, specific feedback that is meaningful, worthwhile and creates meaning. This will help the student take more personal ownership of their planning in a project, their focus, their commitment to achieving a high standard. Now, they won't all get fantastic all the time and if students didn't have a few lows, they'd never really truly appreciate the highs. There is some contrast to be learned and had here. But if you are giving feedback, help the student understand the worth and value of it. So before we move on to tip five, take a look through some of your students' workbooks, their homework books, their projects. Have a look at the feedback you provided and ask yourself, what are two ways I could improve the quality and value of the feedback that I deliver? And then you will start to engage students on a different level beyond the intellectual into the emotional and that is where students start to feel more of a connection with the learning rather than thinking they are just being taught which as we know teaching doesn't necessarily reflect learning so please do that piece of work now and then we'll move on to tip five tip five is notice and help students manage emotional stress and turbulence. As you already know and perhaps appreciate, stressful situations do occur in life and short bursts of stress can be a healthy learning experience that help us develop that emotional resilience and ability to and willingness to think flexibly and bounce back from challenges and perceived failures that we all experience in our life at some point or other. It's really worth considering the impact on students' ability to learn when they are feeling uh, emotionally inferior or under stress or under pressure to engage in learning or provide an answer to a question that does have a right or wrong answer, especially when this is done in front of students, fellow students. Now, here's the thing. When a student's brain is experiencing emotional turmoil in a negative way, or their view is negative from their map of the world, their brain stops functioning as it does normally. Why? Because there's an emotional storm in their body, a physiological storm and a chemical change in how their brain is operating. Because the student's brain will jump into either fight, flight or freeze, the rabbit in the headlight um, scenario, when they feel under pressure emotionally. And here's the thing, we use different parts of our brain in different emotional situations. So if they're in fight, flight or freeze, stress actually interferes with their, not just their ability to learn, but their willingness to learn because they don't want to feel inferior. They don't want to be feeling that they are wrong, especially in front of a crowd of fellow students uh, where the feedback from fellow students or some of them can be pretty harsh, if not a little bit misguided. So when a student is feeling emotional stress, their emotional mission control, which uh, is in the brain, the amygdala, 
blocks the flow of data, um, information transfer through the brain and stops blood flowing as it should to the neocortex, which is the brain's centre of uh, executive functioning and uh, critical thinking, really. But this happens automatically. It's like an auto uh, pilot response, fight, flight or freeze. My goodness, I don't know this. I'm feeling pressure. Oh my goodness, if I can't answer this, I'm going to feel stupid. I might look thick. Uh, people might uh, tease me for getting it wrong. And all this does is manifest more and more negative emotions and swirls up the uh, chemical storm happening in the brain and in their body. And if this continues for a period of more than three to four minutes and it happens two or three times over the period of two or three weeks, the student's brain will start to develop learned helplessness, where they stop looking for solutions, they start living down to expectations that they set themselves, albeit unwittingly, and start to withdraw from learning because they feel that they're not able to contribute to it or succeed at it. So here's the thing. You need to be aware of how to keep those wonderful brains open to learning, welcoming learning and engaged in wanting to learn. And this is how you can do it. I remember a school teacher of mine at secondary school in uh, 1979, Mr Kapner, would say, look, I'm going to ask you questions. Please put your hand up if you have an answer. Or even if you're not sure of the answer, please put your hand up. Do you know why? Because the worst you can be is wrong. How wonderful was that? Please have a go, because the worst you can be is wrong. But he, he welcomed you into at least having a go and generated an element of a, a, a safety bubble where if you did get it wrong, you didn't appear stupid, you didn't feel stupid, you just had a go and that was commendable. And this is how to position it with students of yours as well, if you feel it's appropriate. Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to be asking you questions about this. I would like you to have a go, so please get your thinking caps on and... If I ask a question, please, rather than say I don't know, please have a go, because the worst you can be is wrong, and who knows, you could get it right, and wouldn't that be fantastic? So this is how to engage collaboration and involvement with a student. It sounds like you are talking to them personally rather than talking to a group. Another way to help students manage emotional turbulence and stress in the learning environment is simply to ask Please, would you share your thoughts on what you're thinking about this? Now, this is very different to what do you think, what's on your mind, which are very direct questions. And depending on the tone that they're asked in and the level of trust between student and teacher and teacher and student, it can come across as quite invasive or uh, autocratic, really. What are you thinking? What are your thoughts? If you say, what are your thoughts on this? Please do share. What does that do? It's collaborative, it's inviting, and it's please do share. Rather than imposing your authority, as in I want to help, you should tell me, it's please, you're very welcome to share your thoughts with me. Please go ahead. Our brains, students and any human being, our brains tend to respond more positively <laughs> and openly to invitations and requests rather than instructions or demands. Don't you find that when someone tells you what to do, you want to rebel on the inside, even if you don't externally? <laughs> it's the same for students. If you invite them to enter a discussion and request information 
rather than expect it or demand it, they're far more likely to want to share it with you if it's in a high-trust relationship. So, please, would you tell me your thoughts on this? Or alternatively, you could try something like, I wonder how I may be able to help you with this. May I share some thoughts and get yours too? You see, may I share my thoughts and get yours too? Isn't that collaborative? Isn't it engaging? And isn't it enabling? Because when you go quiet, maybe they're just starting to think. And just because they're staring out the window in such a conversation <laughs> and they're not blinking or not looking you straight in the eye doesn't mean they're not thinking. They probably are just starting to think. Why? Because not many teachers and parents give their child, however younger, however old, however emotionally mature, time to think. It's stimulus response. I asked the question, you should respond now. That's not the way to do it. So please start to observe uh, and identify and help students manage emotional stress. So before we move on to tip six, think of three students that you have in your class or under your care that tend to sometimes jump into stressful situations or disengage from learning, not because they've been obstructive or uh, arrogant or ignorant, it's just because perhaps they're struggling on the inside, their, their emotions are a bit all over the place and not particularly focused on potentially doing very well. How can you support them? Think of three ways to approach them in a collaborative, supportive and very authentic manner and then we'll move on. Tip six is pre-framing learning. What do I mean by pre-framing? Well, the most straightforward way to explain pre-framing is giving advance warning. You're pre-framing by giving advance warning of what subjects are going to be learned that week, if it's a Monday, what projects are going to be undertaken that week, what tests, what experiments, what projects are going to be hands-on and brains-on, what are going to be team discussions, what are going to be undertaken individually. Now, pre-framing just helps direct the student's brain in the direction that you want it to be so it can start to create meaning and perhaps even excitement about what they're going to be learning that week, that morning, that afternoon. Now, pre-framing is, think of it from an adult perspective, don't people get excited two or three weeks before their summer holiday because they know it's going to happen on a certain date and they're already planning in how relaxing, how exciting, how absolutely enjoyable it's going to be and they're going to lay on the beach or canoe down the river or sit and bake in the sunshine. Well, that's the same for a student. OK, they're not going on holiday. The budget doesn't stretch to that. But it's pre-framing what they'll be doing, what they'll be learning, how they'll be doing it, how they can create some excitement, how they can create some interest, how they can create some adventure in the projects that they'll be undertaking with you that day, that week. So that when it does come to start that project, start that lesson, their brain is already engaged. But pre-framing learning, just mentioning it in a monotone, is not very good at all. It can sound quite boring. But if it's history, for example, it's bringing history to life. Again, my old history teacher would bring Egypt to life by saying, we're going to explore the pyramids, we're going to explore the River Nile and why it's so important to Egypt now and why it has been for thousands of years. We're going to explore the kings and the Tutankhamun and the treasures that were found in the pyramids. But then my history teacher would follow that up with, think about two things that you want to learn about Egypt when we undertake 
this project. Just think of two things that you really want to learn, that you really want to find out about Egypt when we do this project, because there will be a, a project for you to do. There's also homework. But you see what he was doing? Unwittingly or otherwise, he was pre-framing the learning, creating some interest, creating some intrigue, and getting us to think about what we wanted to learn from it, rather than just us turning up 20 or 25 children in a history class listening to a story about King Tut or the pyramids, and all of these kinds of things. He pre-framed it perfectly to create interest early on. This is what you can do with your class as well. Now, you may be thinking, this will take time. It takes about two minutes. But it's also the tone of voice and the personal impact that you demonstrate when you're presenting and pre-framing the lessons, the learning, the adventure, the teamwork, the collaboration, all these kinds of things. So pre-framing learning is a fantastic way to start a day, to start a week, and to start a term. Now, at the end of the day, it's reviewing the learning. What have you learned about Egypt in this lesson? For example, if we're sticking with the Egypt theme. And it's asking around the class... Not necessarily putting hands up, but asking around the class, John, tell me two things you've learned about Egypt that you didn't know at the start of this lesson. They'll tell you, fantastic, they've externalised their learning. It's shared ownership of learning now because it's a social obligation to answer your question in a high-trust collaborative relationship. Jane, tell me two things that you really enjoyed learning about Egypt. And they'll tell you. Most of the time, they'll tell you, unless it's someone being obstructive, I don't know, miss, or I don't know, sir. But things, okay, I'll come back to you in two minutes' time, and then you can tell me then. Because it's keeping, it's not not letting a student get out of answering a question that you've asked, it's keeping them in the learning loop. And then, if they do require time to think, it's, I'll come back to you in two minutes, and you can t uh, share your learnings with us then. So... Review the learning at the end of the day. They don't have to write the learning down unless uh, you wish them to, which, again, is another fantastic way of externalising learning so they can go back to it at a later time and remember, oh, I learned that, oh, I enjoyed that, and stack up, again, our brains keep score. Let them stack up some real positive ticks in their brain. So, pre-frame, the learning. The value of it, the need for it, how it's going to be learned, what's hands-on, what's individual, what's teamwork, what... Um, experiments will be done, what stories will be shared. And then, as you have had the learning, what are two things that you now know about Egypt that you didn't know when we started this lesson? What are two things that you've really enjoyed finding out about Egypt? And share it with the group. Pre-framing and reviewing. A fantastic way to boost learning, boost collaboration, and certainly boost engagement. Please take a few moments... Review your schedule for the next couple of weeks in terms of what subjects you're covering and when you're covering them. And think of three big selling points, three bullet points, just a few words that you can use to really develop some interest, some excitement, some intrigue and uh, in your students to help them want to connect with the learning. Again, it's not what, just what you say, it's how you say it and develop that collaboration. So please do that now before we move on to tip seven. Tip seven is helping the student's brain remain solution focused and that is done by using what we call the as if frame. As if. 
Now, what happens? You will have experienced this possibly this week, and especially this term at some point, with one or two students, or perhaps more, who you ask a question, and uh, what's the answer to so-and-so? What are your thoughts on so-and-so? And their response, immediate response is, don't know, sir. Or, I don't know, miss. Now, sometimes the student will not know the answer. If it's a right or wrong, what's nine times nine? I don't know, sir. I don't know, miss. That might be true and accurate. But there are also situations where there is no right or wrong answer and you say, what are your thoughts? You're after an opinion. You're after them sharing their map of the the world of what you've just explored in the lesson. Uh, I don't know is often, not always, a way to get out of answering a question so you as the teacher will move on and ask someone that does know the answer or at least has got their hand up wanting to... Uh, give some form of answer, rightly or wrongly. So, getting past I don't know is an easy way is the as-if frame. And so, if I'm asking you a question and you you, you say, uh, I don't know, Mr Watson, I'll say, OK, I'll acknowledge that at this moment in time, you do not know. Or at least you're saying you don't not know and I trust you that you've been honest. Next, I will say, OK, if... You did know. If you did know, let's just pretend that you you did know the answer. What would it be? And then just go quiet. Do not respond. Do not respond. Resist the temptation to jump in. So it's, I don't know, Mr Watson. Okay, Deborah, let's pretend that you did know. If you did know an answer, what would it be? You would be surprised at how often a student then comes up, generates their own answer that isn't at all daft, isn't at all stupid, and is really quite well thought out. So here's the thing. Sometimes the student will not know an answer. What is nine times nine? <laughs> yeah, where there is a right or wrong. There are also the times where you want an opinion and there is no right or wrong answer. It's part of a discussion, debate, some form of dialogue. Uh, but they just don't want to share it. Either they don't want to or they feel they shouldn't or they feel if they do, there is some repercussion from fellow students or you as a teacher. So as if. Act as if you did know. If you did know an answer, what would it be? Then shush, shush, shush. Open your ears and just sit and wait and respectfully give them time to respond. On the occasion, they may come back and say, well, I still don't know. And they may not be being awkward. They may just not feel it's appropriate to speak publicly about it. But the thing is, if you then move on, you've taught them how to treat you. All they need to do is do this once or twice and then you'll move on. So it's, it's got to be done carefully where you say, OK, if you didn't know, If there was an answer that you could share with us right now, what would it be? You would be surprised at how often you get an answer, a well-thought-out answer, or even if it's not well-thought-out, it's a commendable answer because they've dared to overcome their resistance to share their answer with you and with the group. Now, the real lasting benefits from this come when you've applied this consistently on a day-to-day basis for a period of at least two weeks. You're re-educating your students individually and collectively that you provide a safe environment, a safety bubble where they can get things wrong, And but their effort for answering a question as best they can is commended, is appreciated, is acknowledged for all the right reasons. And also, the individual's themselves will realise that they have been invited to engage in daring to overcome uncertainty, deal with emotional turbulence on the inside as 
mm, what if I get it wrong or what will my teacher say, what will the people sat next to me say. It's that self-awareness for them where they can overcome that initial emotional uncertainty and dare to speak up. This is enhancing their self-awareness and also self-management. But also, when they start getting things right, they're more likely to want to start engaging in putting their hands up in contributing to the class. And those that keep getting things wrong, maybe then there's an opportunity to support them individually and help them as best you can and also help their fellow students to help them as well. So before we move on to the next tip, please take a moment to think of three situations in your classroom tomorrow or later this week where you can actively use the as if frame to maintain a focus on solutions help students with their self-awareness and self-management and help them feel safe in externalizing their answer whether or not it's wrong or actually right remember our brains keep score and this is about helping to set and maintain a healthy emotional climate in your classroom tip eight is help students develop greater impulse control help students develop greater impulse control. So let's look first at what actually is an impulse. It's an emotional response to a thought that gets us to take immediate action without considering the implications and consequences. It's just autopilot uh, behaviour. In its most basic terms, effective impulse control is an ability to think about implications and consequences before taking action or demonstrating a certain behaviour or saying something that could be uh, construed as offensive, rude or just downright unhelpful. Impulse control in its purest sense is developing the capacity to look before you leap. Now, let me share a story told to me by the head of a, a primary school who had called a young boy into his office for a chat about why he'd struck out at a fellow student. Thankfully, it was uh, nothing serious in terms of harm done or uh, lasting damage. The point is the head teacher wanted to address this with the student and not just reprimand his behaviour, uh, but also listen and understand why it had happened. And when he asked the student rather nervous student, I believe, um, why he'd struck out at another student, his answer was, I don't know. I don't know why I did it. It just happened. Now, you and I may think, first of all, that uh, that's a bit of a cop-out. It's a get-out-of-jail card. Really, it turned out not to be. The student really didn't understand what had driven him to take that action at that moment with that person in that environment. What was it? It was a lack of impulse control, not looking before he leapt. Only after visiting the head teacher's office and receiving that reprimand and having a letter sent home to his parents did he then understand the consequences of his actions. Now, please have a think about this. Do you know of some students that appear not to be able to, at this moment in time, look before they leap. They just jump into things. They're always the first to get there and start things. And really, things don't work out particularly well lots of times. Or if they do work out well for them, it tends to be by accident and not consistent or structured. Are there some children that are difficult when trying to put on the brakes or behave in an aggressive 
or hostile way to fellow students or even some staff. These people do turn up often, not always, but often. They don't do it intentionally. They don't go out to ruin your day or disrupt students' learning. It's a blind spot. They're just not aware of it. They've not developed that awareness of or that ability to spot an impulse, an emotional impulse, because remember, we have an emotional response to any situation before a logical response, because we are emotional beings. And often... With an absence of impulse control, it's uh, like buyer's remorse when you bought that car because it was nice and shiny and a special deal that day, get it home and it's already lost 25% of its value, then you wonder, I really shouldn't have done that, should I? It's the same principle in a very different context, very different setting for students. It's a blind spot. I'm not aware of the impact that my behaviour, my communication is having on fellow students around my table in the same class or my teacher. Now, the thing here is helping students develop greater impulse control is not just an education-based skill, it's a life skill. If you look at many of the social ills that are reported on the um, news media, uh, broadcast and print media... Many relate to excessive drinking, many relate to people fighting, many relate to uh, people taking drugs, teenagers and upwards. What are these? It's not people thinking, I want to get drunk because I want a headache tomorrow and a hangover. It's not people taking drugs because they want to damage their health and uh, have significant health problems later on in life. It's impulse control. It's a lack of impulse control, as in, I've seen that, it's... At what I want, I want it now. Now, it, it, currently, in September 2012, there's um, a sweet manufacturer or has an advert on television about uh, a child trying to resist one or two of their sweets. And it shows you four or five children trying to resist, trying to resist, trying to resist. And the child looks round, makes sure there's no adults there watching them, and then they eat the sweet. It's, this is based on a, a real experiment undertaken in the 1960s by an eminent psychologist named Walter Michel. And the experiment was taken uh, at Stanford University in the United States. It was called the Marshmallow Test and involved a number of four-year-old children. So the setup was this. A table, a chair, was set in front of a child and the child sat down on the chair but on the table was a wonderful, welcoming, scrumptious marshmallow. So with the very innocent, <laughs> unwitting child sat at the desk in front of this wonderful marshmallow, the person running the test said that he had to leave the room for a few minutes to run an errand, uh, but made an offer to the child before he left that he may or may not refuse. Now, if the child wanted to eat the marshmallow immediately straight away without delay, that's okay. But, and here's the thing, if the child waited until the adult returned, the reward would not just be that marshmallow, it would be a second marshmallow. Now, think of the psychology of this. This led children to have to make their own choices. And the results of these tests were recorded. Two-thirds of the children managed to wait to delay immediate gratification and not eat the marshmallow. 
Isn't that fantastic? They earned the second marshmallow. Didn't just get it, they earned it because they'd managed their impulse. Delayed gratification. The other kids, <laughs> the other third, either didn't or couldn't wait and they just ate the single marshmallow on offer and that was it. But that wasn't the end of the experiment because the parents of most of the children who didn't wait were employed at Stanford University. And Michelle was able to easily catch up with them 12 and 14 years later when their children were about to graduate from high school. What he gained was access to academic records from the parents and he was able to evaluate how successfully they'd been in and out of school. What do you think he found? Just based on this simple but very strategic marshmallow test, what do you think he found? I think you'll have guessed it. The children who couldn't or didn't wait for the second marshmallow, couldn't delay gratification, had one or two problems at school. As a group, they were less adept at making social contacts and developing relationships. They weren't performing as well academically and they were more prone to behavioural traits such as stubbornness and being indecisive. And another point was when these children were experiencing frustration or temptation, they tended to just collapse emotionally, just gave in or gave up. Now, those who delayed their gratification put their gratification on hold and by doing so, doubled their pleasure, remember, with a second marshmallow, they tended to be more successful. They demonstrated greater social skills, uh, better relationships and ability to develop uh, good relationships. They demonstrated superior coping mechanisms and in general were ahead of the game in terms of ability and willingness to learn. So, think of it for your school, for your class, for your students, the ability at the age of four for a child to postpone the need for immediate gratification has become a benchmark of how they would develop in teenage and later years. So let's now explore how you can help your students delay immediate gratification, whether it's communication, whether it's an outburst, whether it's behaviour. It's really valuable to remember that any child can go through a day, a week, a term, a whole academic year being told off by their teacher. Eventually the teacher will get more frustrated and take appropriate action, whatever that may be. But if now you know about effective or ineffective impulse control, if you were a student, where would the real learning come from? Outside of you, in terms of a teacher reprimanding you, telling you off, giving you a little bit of a roasting, or making you stay behind so you couldn't have playtime? Or would the lasting learning that would serve you not just through that day, that week, that term, that year and perhaps through life, would it be better coming from inside where you start to develop this awareness and this capability and this ability to manage your impulses and thoughts and actions more effectively? Where do you think the best learning comes from? Well, you're right, it comes from inside and this is why these tips are related to you supporting their learning rather than them complying with your request, command, demand, instruction. The first tip is to draw attention to the possibility that some students may want to fidget, they may want 
to look around the classroom rather than pay attention to you if that's what you're expecting them to do. They may want to fiddle with things or nudge their neighbour and try and start a conversation. So the first point is draw attention to the potential temptation. What do I mean by that? It's another case of pre-framing learning, as we discussed earlier. An example could be clapping hands or drawing attention to you so they know their attention needs to be removed from where they are now onto you. Boys, girls, please pay attention now. I wish to speak with you about something. When they're looking, you say, OK, this morning we are going to be exploring, then name the subject. Please bear in mind right now, you may at some point be... Tempted to fidget, you may at some point think it's the right thing to have a little chat with your neighbour when you should be focusing on what I'm sharing with you. Please understand now that is not acceptable this morning. What is acceptable is paying attention and then when it's the right time I will let you know to have a chat with your neighbour to explore the subject. Are you happy to do that? Raising hands. Raise your hand. And if they're happy to do that, they'll raise theirs. You see, you're not saying, are we all happy to do this? You're saying, are you happy to do this? Because it makes it sound like you're speaking to that individual student rather than the group. And again, if you speak with the individual student and they think it's about them, they're far more likely to go along and comply with your request or instruction. So it's letting them know in advance and that gets their brain focused on what is and isn't acceptable. So therefore, at that moment, they are better equipped to manage that impulse to do something. Now, it won't work all the time and this is why when someone breaks that agreement and it is an agreement rather than a demand, when someone breaks that agreement, you bring them back to, David, you did agree to how we would work this morning. Have I, do I understand that you, you did, didn't you? Yes, miss. Yes, sir. OK, help me understand why you've chosen to break that agreement. You see, it's not about him uh, behaving. It's about an agreement that was made that he's chosen not to uh, keep. Think of this. The dialogue is very, very straightforward, very, very collaborative, but it helps that student and the others that were observing to realise that this standard is the standard that's going to work in that classroom at that time. This tool works on the principle that you teach people how to treat you. You teach people how to treat you. And only by re-educating them uh, as a group, uh, individually and collectively, will you then start to develop a greater awareness in your students of how they are expected and also trusted to behave and also the consequences and implications of them not going along with such an agreement. So remember, you teach people how to treat you. So if people, uh, students keep kicking off or misbehaving or shouting out when they shouldn't, you've taught them by not addressing it in a certain way that that is acceptable or at least it's something they can uh, get away with. Another tip is you may have around your classroom, around your school, lots of posters about um, treating each other fairly, a helping hand and anti-bullying, etc. And these are all a good start. But if these principles, these messages aren't acted upon by students, it's a bad ending. So just think bullying is often related to poor impulse control. I think I can command that person, I can control that person, I can make that person feel bad, so I'm going to do it. Impulse control, it's more than that, of course. It doesn't all come down to it, but it is an emotional response. So, 
if there's an instance of a student making uh, an untimely, unseemly and uncalled for and unacceptable outburst in your class, it's not just why did you do that, it's come to the front and explain to me and explain to the class why you chose to do that, whatever it may be. You see, we're taking it from why did you do that? I don't know. And as I said earlier, sometimes children do not know why they've done it. They just know that they're in bother after doing it. And because they've not got that awareness, they don't know how to manage themselves through it. So the question is, help me understand why you chose to do that. I don't know, sir. I don't know, miss. Okay, well, please take a moment. Just sit there or stand there for a couple of moments and I'll be back with you after you've had a good think. Now, this isn't a punishment. You're not saying you're going to stand there till you give me an answer. It's I'm giving you time and space to think. Because only by we can only act on what we think about. So we need to think very carefully and very clearly. Students, uh, especially at primary school, do, and even at, through teenagers, often haven't developed that ability or willingness to think about implications and consequences. So it's, please help me understand why you chose to do that. I don't know, I don't know. I'll come back to you in two minutes and I would like an honest answer from you. Would you please do that? And again, it's inviting, it's collaborating. Now a student may say, no. And you say, OK, help me understand why. Why you'd rather not speak about it? Because it develops an emotional responsibility, it develops a social obligation for that student, in, with everyone's best interests at heart, to speak honestly, speak openly in a safety bubble of your classroom and ideally in a high-trust relationship with the teacher. But if we don't ask these questions, all we're going to do is maintain the child's autopilot setting where... They do things and only when there's a consequence at the end of it, uh, a, a reprimand, a telling off, a letter to the parents, do they then start to think this is a problem. But again, knowing something's a problem is a good start, but if they don't know how to fix it or repair it or explore different ways of thinking, communicating and behaving, they're not going to develop that level of self-awareness and self-management that allows them to grow as human beings as well as students. Tip nine is develop your empathy. What is empathy? Well, it's really a genuine connection with someone else where we felt on the same wavelength, where we've had a connection that we're either thinking the same things or in it together. Now, in a classroom, you don't need to be thinking the same things, but doesn't a student really want to appreciate that he or she and you are in this learning experience together, that your brains are really interlocked, that they've connected and that you're enjoying the learning, that you're enjoying the subject, but not just that, you're enjoying the teacher sharing it with you, being passionate about it, making you, helping you think for yourself, create new connections that will help you enjoy the experience and embed the learning long term. The best teachers are those who take time to really listen and fully understand where the student is at. Again, the emotional climate of your classroom. If it needs warming up, the empathic teacher will notice that and immediately spring into action to ask good questions, get an activity going, build some rapport, get some laughs going and then get students focused on the learning but actually enjoying the process. Think of it this way. If uh, you had to go to hospital for an operation, nothing too serious, but serious enough to warrant a, an operation, who would you prefer to be looked after? 
a doctor who is a technical whiz kid and came top of the class, but is just a whiz kid. He knows everything he needs to know. He knows exactly what he needs to do and how he needs to do it. But he's missing that bedside manner. Or would you prefer someone that, you know, still knows what he's doing, wasn't top of the class, isn't a whiz kid, but he's technically competent, has a great track record, but really helps you engage in understanding why the operation is required, what other options there could be, what he's going to do or she's going to do with you and for you, and how his or her team are going to help you recover as quickly as possible, as effectively as possible, and get you back on your feet as quickly as they can, and really listens to you, listens to your concerns, understands your concerns, and responds accordingly with a very genuine, with a technically competent, but a very caring manner. Option two, I thought you might. And this is what empathy is about. In its most basic term, it's the bedside manner. But again, as I mentioned earlier on in this audio programme, teaching doesn't necessarily reflect effective learning. And it's the remote control principle again. You're sending signals all the time to your students. They're receiving those signals and then bounce them back. If you're in a bad mood, you certainly won't help them get into a good mood. <laughs> if you're in a good mood, they're likely to catch those emotions and start living up to your expectations, start joining in with the invitations that you give them to engage in learning rather than just receive teaching. Now, empathy is a very powerful foundation on which you can build trust. Not just technical competence, but that deeply human trust based around character, based around you personally. Don't confuse empathy with sympathy. Sympathy is, you feel bad, I'll feel bad with you. We don't want that, that helps nobody. Empathy is also, it's not... <laughs> Be nice to people all the time. Being nice is a good start, but it's being nice with a purpose. Empathy is if someone is feeling a little down, you are there for them to listen, to understand, to give them thoughtful consideration. Not try and change them, give them thoughtful consideration, and then if you have their permission to do so which as a teacher you do by default, it's helping them explore another way of thinking, explore another way to feel, explore another way to communicate, explore another way to behave that is more productive, effective and good for them as individuals and human beings and good for the classroom too. Now, the first step to developing empathy as a teacher is to respectfully focus your attention on the individual on the individual student. Now, and also switching off your brain as in, I need, I need to speak here, I need to talk here, I need to say something here. It's giving the child, the student, the teenager, the primary school child, an opportunity to take time to think, to really think things through whilst you're listening and understanding. And also by doing this, you start to pick up on the emotions that they're feeling. You won't be able to mind read, but you will start to pick up on their emotions. It does require fine-tuning, but also it requires that you withhold judgment. And even when a child has been reprimanded for behaviour that's not acceptable, empathy can be done assertively. So please think how you can still develop empathy and demonstrate empathy, even when you're a little bit frustrated that 
a student has misbehaved. Now, teachers who lack empathy and use a more command and control attitude or catch people doing things wrong rather than acknowledging when they do things right, they may get complaints. And if that's a habit you've got, please get some support to really shake you out of that little habit and start catching the students doing things right. But when a command and control approach to teaching and educating is taken, you may get compliance and improved results and improved behaviour for a few days, a few weeks, even a few months. But it's very, very unlikely that these improvements that you will see will be sustainable in the following months. Why? Because our brains as human beings respond far better to requests and invitations than they do to demands and commands and instructions delivered in an authoritarian manner. And some of the previous tips about the way to ask questions, the way to free students' brains from problem-solving, the way to get them involved, actively involved in learning and taking ownership of their learning. This is about empathy. It's not just what you say to students, it's how you say it. Because what you say isn't always what the student hears. I absolutely understand that exam grades and test results are really, really important to you as a teacher and as a professional educator. Think of this alongside that really important point. Empathy will help your students want to work with you and alongside you rather than work against you. Now, you may think that there's no revolution, there's no revolt in my classroom. No, it's not about that. It's helping students want to engage, want to feel enabled, want to feel encouraged, and also want to feel that when they are reprimanded, individually or collectively, it's for the right reasons, at the right time, to the right level. So empathy is more about you than it is about your students. But as we catch emotions from each other, as you know, in families as well as the school playground, we catch behaviours from each other as well. So develop that bedside manner. It's to work alongside everything that you do really well already. It's not to replace anything. But when you're dealing with a student or a parent who is complaining or not complying or misbehaving, uh, let's take the parent, for example. When you feel you've got to fight your corner in the middle of an argument or a spirited debate, as some people call it, empathy falls by the wayside because we're so caught up in that emotional experience. Because it's happening to us. We are emotional beings. But this is where we need empathy the most. We can feel frustrated. We can feel misunderstood. We can feel we're not listened to. And we can feel defensive. But it's noticing that and then switching that bedside manner on. So the other person realises that becoming more aggravated, aggrieved, um, with more outbursts, more angry outbursts, isn't working. So they need to be more flexible in how they're communicating and behaving with you. So that's empathy. A way to develop empathy is to ask good questions. Why, what, how, when. Asking a question gives you more information to work with. And also, when you ask a question of a student, if they're feeling angry, frustrated, aggrieved, um, emotionally out of control, when you ask them a question, their brain uses a different part of their brain to answer that question, they've got to momentarily step out of that not very productive state, emotional state, to answer your question. So remember, empathy, ask questions. Why, 
what, how, when. Not why you're feeling so angry, that's just going to make things worse. Why did this happen and what can you do to resolve this matter? What are two things you could do to feel better now so we can return to class and get on with what we're doing? Empathy. Not sympathy, not being nice to people all the time, but it's that bedside manner which I invite you, if you focus on that bedside manner, developing empathy for 10 days consistently, you will see dramatic improvements in how many, if not all, of your students start to behave and think and operate. And if you think that's something worth doing, grab your diary, grab your iPhone, your iPad, your smartphone and start putting little notes, little reminders for each morning and each afternoon in your phone so it gives you a gentle reminder on what to focus on. Tip 10 is by far the most important tip. Why? Because it's about you implementing the skills, tools, techniques that you've learned in this audio program alongside everything you do on a daily basis. The, some people, I hope you're not one of them, will listen to this audio program once and say, well, I do that, or that won't make sense, or what does Scott Watson know about my role, or my pressures, or my stresses, or my students? Well, I've never met your students, so I don't have your stresses, and I don't have your class. What I do have is a commitment to supporting you if you're one of those people, one of those teachers, one of those professional educators that are committed to really boosting not just your own effectiveness and your own performance, but that of your students, the people that are trusting you to do your best for them, to do your best with them and enable them to learn as much as they can and use that learning and grow as human beings. So if this is the last time we will meet, on this program thank you for taking time to listen if you've got this far there must have been some value there for you if you're one of the people which i hope you are that will listen to this again and again and share it with your colleagues so you can all collaborate to boost the level of emotional intelligence across your school that will be absolutely fantastic you'll start noticing the difference the students will start noticing a difference fingers crossed the exam results and test results will start noticing a difference as will parents but the point is i bet this isn't the first time you've listened to an audio program or even attended a training course that you thought oh that's really good that's really useful that makes sense and then returned to the rather hectic uh, school environment and with the best intentions, you've not really applied the learning or you've applied it but in bits and bats and really tried to find time to implement the learning but just never found it. This programme is just over one hour. This programme, if you use it, will help you develop the emotional muscle, the resilience, the ability to further engage and further enable and further encourage your students to perform at or near their best, whatever that is for them, on a consistent basis. Only you can decide whether it is worth you applying this learning, listening to this program again, sharing it with your colleagues and finding other ways to further enhance what you've learned here. I can't do that for you. I can drive you to the gym, but you've got to get out of the car and get on the treadmill and get on the bike and do the rowing. I can't do that for you. This is where getting some support back in your school 
from a buddy, from your classroom teaching assistant, from your head, from your line manager, and indeed from your students, can really help you get the best value from this programme. So please have a think. Get your smartphone out, your iPhone, whatever it may be. Get your diary out and start making notes on reminders on what to apply when you return to the classroom tomorrow, how to arrive there early in a calm, relaxed and focused manner, how to take time to remember to ask good questions and help students overcome their learning barriers from their map of the world rather than yours, how to interrupt your pattern when it's not particularly productive by having an elastic band (laughs) with no budgetary cost on it on your wrist. Have a think because As well as being a professional teacher, as well as being a fantastic educator, perhaps you're also paid and trusted to be a wonderful learner. That's what this audio programme has been about. It's to help you learn of different avenues to explore, different routes to take, so you can build on even further on what you are doing on a daily basis in your school. So I'm Scott Watson. Thank you for taking time to listen and engage with this audio programme. I do wish you lots of success in your career and with your students. And please have a great time teaching. It's a wonderful vocation. And the more you enjoy it, the more your students will enjoy it. So best wishes from me. And I hope to meet you sometime soon. If you wish to find out about my in-school training programmes, please visit emotionalintelligenceforteachers.co.uk or scottwatson.co.uk